Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. I am Professor Robert E.G. Black, your host for these past ten minutes. I've also been the host of Michael Myers Minute, Dave Made a Minute, The Room Minute, Annihilation Minute, Mandy Sucks Minute, Cock and Bull Movie Talk, Greetings from Waterfalls, Two Minutes About Time, Pump Up the Minute, and Five Minute Arrival. I get around. And now I'm here, one more time, for Minute 100 of the Best Years of Our Lives. Do not weep, maiden, for war is kind, because your lover threw wild hands toward the sky, and the affrighted steed ran on alone. Do not weep, war is kind. Hoarse, booming drums of the regiment, little souls who thirst for fight, these men were born to drill and die. The unexplained glory flies above them. Great is the battle god, great, and his kingdom, a field where a thousand corpses lie. Do not weep, babe, for war is kind, because your father tumbled in the yellow trenches, raged at his breast, gulped and died. Do not weep, war is kind. Swift blazing flag of the regiment, eagle with crest of red and gold, these men were born to drill and die. Point for them the virtue of slaughter, make plain to them the excellence of killing and a field where a thousand corpses lie. Mother, whose heart hung humble as a button on the bright splendid shroud of your son, do not weep. War is kind. Stephen Crane, War is Kind I must study politics and war that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy. My sons ought to study mathematics and philosophy, geography, natural history, naval architecture, navigation, commerce, and agriculture in order to give their children a right to study painting, poetry, music, architecture, statuary, tapestry, and porcelain. John Adams, Letter to Abigail Adams, 12th May, 1780 David A. Gerber writes in American Quarterly, December 1994, quote, At the end of World War II, Americans, with a sharply divided consciousness that both honored the veteran and feared his potential to disrupt society, prepared to receive and reintegrate millions of demobilized men. The return of the disabled veteran gave rise to particularly acute anxieties, for his difficulties in adjusting to civilian life would be compounded by his injuries. During the war, experts in social work, the military, and the social sciences had begun to prepare the public for the likelihood of a major social crisis prompted by the sudden demobilization of millions of men, able-bodied and disabled alike. These experts also attempted to mobilize American women on behalf of an effort at the level of the individual family and household to take responsibility for assisting veterans in their readjustment struggles. On the one hand, the veterans' heroism and sacrifices are celebrated and memorialized, and depths of gratitude, both symbolic and material, are paid to him. On the other hand, the veteran also inspires anxiety and fear and is seen as a threat to social order and political stability. This second, less officially acknowledged response is based on a plausible, though greatly exaggerated, projection. Remove young men from the restraining influence of educational institutions, employment, and family? Provide them with advanced weapons training and send them off on a violent adventure? Expose their minds and bodies to horrific injuries? And then attempt to return them speedily to the life they had previously known, and you have a prescription for individual and social chaos. End quote. The best years of our lives is the story of three such men. Trained to be soldiers, but being a soldier is not useful back in Boone City. There is a moment in Cantor's novel, a story told by Peggy to Fred, involving a dog. That week, another warrior ran upon Boone City grass once more, a handsome male with good Clark Gable face, the lengthened ears, the brows, the strong brown eyes, and tendons strung like wire on his bones. His name was Duke. He'd loved a woman once. 
He'd loved some children and a man, but all the age he spent with them was now confused, mixed up in disarray with orders, smells of other life, with clack of guns and killer talk, and all the process he'd been taught of doing well with his great shoulders and his teeth, the fighting heart behind to drive them on. They'd set him in a dragon shape and armed him with iniquity. And then one day they shipped him back. He felt his paws on quiet turf again, with Kali living close and Newfoundland beyond, and on the other side a German shepherd of his kind. The weeks went by. They tried to teach him not to tear the living flesh, to find the throat, to bite the ankle, bring the runner down. They tried to tell him that the world was not alive, with enemies to be subdued, that every human form before him did not walk in curse and danger. Now the weeks were months. Duke wagged his tail. His ears were up. His eyes were willing, telegraph of his black nose, but pleasant understanding in his brain. Okay, they said. He's ready for discharge. The printed paper with his name set down. The proud certificate to worship on a wall and indicate with laughter and with love. Oh, long, oh, long, to fade within its frame when he was gone, when Duke was old and dead and gone. They brought him back, so panting and so hot. He jolted in his crate across Boone City pavement. Thus he smelled his certain home rich earth again, the soil that he had dug in puppyhood. The crate came down, the catch was lifted, door was bent, he heard a voice. They smothered him with squeals and rapture. All the neighborhood came close to meet him. Duke remembered now, remembered much, though puzzled still at finding all these folks. He licked a hand, he saw a cat, his ears went up. He ran around, his big nose leading on. He wet the ground, his able legs tore grass and leaves to cover up. He danced and galloped, did a trick that he'd forgotten how to do, when men made killer out of him. That night he slept, he sank serene, with eyes squeezed shut, in his old place upon the parlor rug, the people there. He lifted now and then from sleep, his tail slammed on the floor. He slept again, a child bent over him to kiss goodnight. He leaped to life with open jaws and slashed. The screams arose, the blood ran red, the feats were running. Dr. Cooper came. They put Duke in the dark garage. He drooped his tail. He moaned a little. Sniffed round the box they placed for him, with old coats on its floor. He lay in darkness, wolfish, pondering. Twice in the night a flashlight burned his face. He stared. He saw the light. He wondered. Wagged his tail and lay alone in gloom once more. Next morning he was taken far away. Perhaps in time he'd learn. Upon that farm they took him to. Perhaps. Nobody knew. He'd loved the child when she was younger still and softer, frailer, when her fingers hurt his hair, and twisted uncomplaining ears. He had endured, accepted all the torment that she gave, and never cried, and never bit before. But he had been away to war, and he was not the same. He'd have to study sanity, in better fashion than the canine men could teach, to qualify for comfort on that rug again. They told me, at the Red Cross rooms, the child's not badly hurt, too early yet to tell if she is scarred, and Peggy played with Derry's hair and ears. How are you, Duke? she asked. And in other places in the novel, this nation used Fred Derry in the war. This nation found him powerful and wise. In conduct of his portion of the war, this nation gave him money dressed him proud, the rank the choice display of ribbon wear. This nation didn't use him well at home, or so at last Fred thought he'd come to see, nor found him worthy of a decent price. He went in as a child, as many went. He came out as a monster. He thought about his soul, how it had undergone a change. He couldn't tell how much. He didn't know the weight. Fred Derry, twenty-one, and killer of a hundred men, 
but he had slain them far beneath, five miles away, anonymous, the mushrooms of the bombs. Al Stevenson had seen the dead he made. Good for the past, good for the future, but worth nothing now. Their worry made them one, and each had felt the kiss of death so many times that he could only share himself with other men whose lips still wore the damp and pungent print of cold infinity. The Corn Belt Bank Al has left John Novak sitting at his desk while he catches up with Homer, who is there cashing his government check. Homer just asked Al if he knew Fred Derry was working at the drugstore. Al, no, oh, I, I didn't. didn't. Homer, he introduce me to, to his wife. wife. Al, yeah. Al? Homer whistles. Some dish. Homer hits his hooks together, and I have no idea what gesture he is trying to approximate. Al, yeah, we'll, we'll all have, have to get, get together, together at butchers one of these days. days. Homer, fine. Oh, oh that's, that's where I'm going, going now. now. Al, yeah. Homer, to take, take a, a piano, piano lesson. lesson. Al, you, you uh huh. Take one, one for me. me. <laughs> Al grabs Homer's right wrist and shakes it. Homer, Al, see you later. So Homer, long, Homer. Bye. Homer leaves out of frame to the left. Beat. Al starts to walk downstage to the left, and we cut to angle from Al's desk. Novak watching Al return. He gets to his feet as Al arrives. Al, well, well uh, uh, as I was saying, Mr. Novak, Novak there is no element of risk involved. Uh, uh, we'll have to have the property appraised, but uh, you'll, you'll get, get your loan. Al Stevenson was proud. He thought of how his father managed banking in his other time, the loans of character, the bright-eyed immigrant, who earned his first hard silver in a new community, and sought to bury it, to plant it in the soil, and make his crop more bountiful. Al heard his father tell about the time he loaned $1,000 to a man, on just his given word. The note would be signed later, then the man was killed, gored by a bull that very afternoon. The months went by, the man's tall sons walked in the bank, they straggled up, they made their halting speech, they paid the thousand back, with interest at six percent. Novak. Say, Say Mr. Stevenson, Stevenson, I don't know how to begin, begin to thank you. Al, patting Novak on his shoulder, don't, don't try. try. You, you look, look like, like a good, good risk, risk to me. me. When the tomato, tomato plants start, start producing, producing tomatoes instead of lilacs, as in Cantor's novel, which could have symbolized spring, renewal, confidence, tomatoes are more practical, less meaningful. I'll come, come out for, for some, some free samples. samples. Such sturdy, simple banking when the smell of fresh-shelled corn was in the air, when strong the good brown apples of manure were heaped in roadways, when the land, the clean, untarnished sky, and new-sprung cottonwoods were joy. And this was it again. John Novak had the color of a prairie sun upon his cheeks. Al, I'll, I'll let you know when the papers are ready. They shake hands. Novak, thank, thank you, you, sir. Thank you. God bless you. And Novak walks away. They'll never let me out. They'll keep me a secret here until some day when I'm an old, old man. At the end of Johnny Got His Gun, sneak away from them and die. Joe finally manages to communicate using his head to tap Morse code against his pillow. Yes, oh, yes. He has asked the question, what do you want? When he made out the question, when he was sure he had translated it right, 
He grew very quiet for a moment. It was like sitting in a silent room waiting for someone very important, someone for whom you have been waiting a long while, and then suddenly hearing a knock on the door. For just a minute you hesitate, wondering who it might be. What does he want and why did he come? For just a second you're scared because although you've waited for years you really never expected the knock. Then you get up and go over and open the door just a little at first, to prepare yourself for the shock of disappointment at discovering it isn't the person you've been wanting. But when you find that the impossible has happened, that the visitor you've been praying for has arrived, you're so relieved and surprised you don't know exactly what to say or how to begin it. What did he want? It was as if someone who longed for the sea and a ship were suddenly given his ship and asked where he wanted to go. He hadn't ever really expected the ship, so he had spent all his time wishing for it, and no time figuring out what to do with it after he got it. He was the same way. He had never really expected to break through. It had been so long and he'd had such trouble trying to make them understand. The whole thing had been just an idea. It had been something to hope for and work for, and the more difficult it got, the more important it became, until in the end it was driving him almost crazy. But up to an hour ago, he had never imagined himself in the position of actually breaking through. Now he had accomplished it. The thing was done, and they were asking him what he wanted. And even though all that was left of his life seemed to depend on answering them, he couldn't organize his thoughts enough to make sense to himself, much less to anyone else. Then he thought about it another way. Maybe it wasn't so much a question of what he wanted as what they could give him. That was it. And what could they give him? He began to resent the question itself and the way they asked it and the ignorance that lay behind it. Who did they think they were and what did they think he wanted that they could give him? Did they think he would ask for an ice cream cone? Did they think he would ask for a good book and an open fire and a cat purring? Did they think he would ask to go to a movie and after that to a soda parlor for a nice cool drink of lemonade? Did they think he would ask for dancing lessons or a pair of binoculars or a course in piano lessons? Imagine how surprised your friends will be. Maybe they thought he wanted a new suit or a silk shirt. Maybe they expected him to complain that the bed was a little hard and please bring me a glass of water. Maybe they thought he would ask for a change of diet. The coffee you've been pouring into my tube lately needs a little more sugar. It tastes bitter to my intestines, so add half a teaspoonful of sugar and stir it well, please. The hash is too wet and it needs some seasoning. I think I would like some fudge. Next time you shove grub through that tube, stick in a piece of fudge, not sugary, not too strong, of chocolate, but smooth and a little warm. I've been waiting all these years and tapping all these months because I love fudge so much. They should know what he wanted, the silly bastards, and they should know they couldn't give it to him. He wanted the things they took for granted, the things nobody could ever give him. He wanted eyes to see with. Two eyes to see sunlight and moonlight and blue mountains and tall trees and little ants and houses that people live in and flowers opening in the morning and snow on the ground and streams running and trains coming and going and people walking and a puppy dog playing with an old shoe worrying it and growling at it and backing away from it and frowning and wiggling its bottom and taking the shoe very seriously. He wanted a nose so that he could smell rain and burning wood and cooking food and the faint perfume that stays in the air after a girl has passed by. He wanted a mouth so he could eat and talk and laugh and taste and kiss. He wanted arms and legs so he could work and walk and be like a man, like a living thing. What did he want? What was there for him to want? What was there left that anybody could give him? It came over him rushing and howling like a torrent of water from behind a dam that was broken. He wanted to get out. He could feel his heart speed up and his flesh tighten at the thought. He wanted to get out. He wanted to get out so that he could feel the taste of fresh air against his skin and imagine even though he couldn't smell that it came from the sea or the mountains or the cities or the farmlands. He wanted to get out so that he could feel people around him. It didn't matter that he couldn't see them or hear them or talk with them. If he were out, he would know that at least he was among them, that he was not shut up in a room away from them. It wasn't right that a man should be shut up in a room. It wasn't right that he should be a prisoner forever. A man needed to be among other men. Every living thing needed to be among its own kind. He was a man, a part of mankind, and he wanted to be taken out so that he could sense other men around him. 
Let me out, he thought. That's all I want. I've been lying here for years and years in a room and a bed and a little covering of skin. Now I want out. I've got to get out. You can't keep a man here like this. He's got to be doing something in order to be sure he's still alive. I'm like a prisoner here and you've got no right to keep me because I've done no wrong. One room, one bed, like in a jail, like an asylum, like in a grave with six feet of earth above. You don't realize how a man can stand only so much of this without going crazy. I'm suffocating and I can't suffocate any longer. I can't stand it. If I had arms, I could move, I could push, I could widen the walls, I could throw back the covers, I could get into a bigger place. If I had a voice, I could yell and holler for help. I could talk to myself and be some company to myself. If I had legs, I could run, I could get away, I could come into the open where there is air, where there is room, where I am not in a hole and smothering. But I haven't got any of these things, I can't do any of these things, so you must help me. You must help me quick, because inside I'm going crazy. I'm going insane, I'm suffering like you'll never know. Inside me I scream and howl and push and fight for room, for air, for escape from the smothering. So let me out where I can feel air and sense people. Please let me out so I can have room to breathe in. Let me out of here and take me back into the world. He was about to tap to them in a flood of dots and dashes when it came over him that there might be difficulties. After all, he wasn't an ordinary guy to be released from an ordinary prison to lead an ordinary life. He was a very unusual case. All his life, no matter where he was, there would have to be people taking care of him. That meant money, and he didn't have any money, and so he would be a burden to people. The government, or whoever it was taking care of him, probably didn't have any money to throw around, humoring a guy spending a fortune taking care of him, just so he could feel air on the outside and presence of people around him. That might make sense to some people, but you could never get the government to understand it. The government would say he is nuts. Whoever heard of a guy without arms, legs, eyes, ears, nose, mouth, getting any fun out of being around people he can't see or hear or talk to? The government would say the whole thing is a crazy idea, and the hell with it, he's better off where he is, and besides it costs too much dough. And then he realized that he had it in his own power to make money, plenty of it, enough to pay his own expenses and the expenses of the people who took care of him, too. Instead of being a burden and a bother to the government, he could even make money for them. People were always willing to pay to see it, curiosity. They were always interested in terrible sights, and probably nowhere on the face of the earth was there any living thing quite so terrible as he was. Once he saw an exhibition of a man who was turning to stone, you could tap a coin against his arm and it sounded as if you were tapping it against marble, the coin would ring so. That was terrible enough, but not nearly so terrible as he was. Yet that man turning to stone was paying his own way and making enough money to pay somebody to take care of him to boot. He could do the same thing. If they would only let him out, he would be able to take care of everything. He would be doing good, too, in a roundabout way. He would be an educational exhibit. People would learn much about anatomy from him, but they would learn all there was to know about war. That would be a great thing to concentrate war in one stump of a body and to show it to people so they could see the difference between a war that's in newspaper headlines and liberty loan drives and a war that is fought out lonesomely, in the mud, somewhere, a war between a man and a high-explosive shell. Suddenly he took fire with the idea he got so excited over it. He forgot about his longing for air and people. His new idea was so wonderful. He would make an exhibit of himself to show all the little guys what would happen to them, and while he was doing it, he would be self-supporting and free. He would do a favor to everybody, including himself. He would show himself to the little guys and to their mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters and wives and sweethearts and grandmothers and grandfathers, and he would have a sign over himself, and the sign would say, Here is war, and he would concentrate the whole war into such a small piece of meat and bone and hair that they would never forget it as long as they lived. He began to tap that he wanted out. His mind ran way ahead of his tapping, but he kept on tapping just the same. What did he want? He'd tell them what he wanted, the goddamn fools. He'd tell them he'd tap it out to them word by word. He'd remember every bit of it and put it down in dots and dashes and they would know. As he tapped, he thought faster. He grew angrier and more excited and he tapped faster and faster, trying to keep up with the words that were pounding on the inside of his mind, the words he could finally use, all the words he had thought of and all the years he had lain silent for he was talking now for the first time. He had learned now and he was talking to someone outside. 
Let me out, he tapped. Let me out of here. Let me out. I won't give you any trouble. I won't be any care. I can earn my keep. I can do a job like anybody else. Take off my nightshirt and build a glass case for me and take me down to the places where people are having fun, where they are on the lookout for freakish things. Take me in my glass case to the beaches and the county fairs and the church bazaars and the circuses and the traveling carnivals. You could do a wonderful business with me. I could pay you for the trouble. You could give them a good spiel. They've heard of the half-man, half-woman. They've heard of the bearded woman and the thin man and the midget. They've seen the human mermaids and the wild men from Borneo and the meat-eating girl from the Congo. Throw our fish and watch her snap for it. They've seen the man who writes with his toes and the man who walks on his hands and the Siamese twins and those little rows of unborn babies pickled in alcohol. But they've seen nothing like this. This will be the goddamnedest dime's worth a man ever had. This will be a sensation in the show world, and whoever sponsors my tour will, will be a new Barnum and have fine notices in all the newspapers because I am something you can really holler about. I am something you can push with a money-back guarantee. I am the dead man who is alive. I am the live man who is dead. If they won't come into our tent with that build-up, then I am something more. I am the man who made the world safe for democracy. If they won't fall for that, then for Christ's sake, they're no men. Let them join the army because the army makes men. Take me along country roads and stop by every farmhouse and every field and ring a dinner gong so that the farmers and their wives and their children and their hired men and women can see me. Say to the farmers, here is something I'll bet you haven't seen before. Here is something you can't plow under. Here is something that will never grow and flower. The manure you plow into your fields is filthy enough, but here is something less than manure because it won't die and decay and nourish even a weed. Here is something so terrible that if it were born to a mare or a heifer or a sow or a ewe, you would kill it on the spot, but you can't kill this because it is a human being. It has a brain. It is thinking all the time. Believe it or not, this thing thinks and it is alive and it goes against every rule of nature although nature doesn't make it so you know what made it so look at its metals real metals probably of solid gold lift up the top of that case and you'll know what made it so it stinks of glory Take me into the places where men work and make things. Take me there and say, boys, here's a cheap way to get by. Maybe times are bad and your salaries are low. Don't worry, boys, because there is always a way to cure things like that. Have a war and then prices go up and wages go up and everybody makes a hell of a lot of money. There'll be one along pretty soon, boys, so don't get impatient. It'll come and then you'll have your chance. Either way, you win. If you don't have to fight, why you stay at home and make 16 bucks a day working in the shipyards? And if they draft you, why you've got a good chance of coming back without so many needs? Maybe you'll only need one shoe instead of two. That's saving money. Maybe you'll be blind, and if you are, why then you would never worry about the expensive glasses. Maybe you'll be lucky like me. Look at me close, boys. I don't need anything. A little broth or something three times a day and that's all. No shoes, no socks, no underwear, no shirt, no gloves, no hat, no necktie, no collar buttons, no vest, no coat, no movies, no vaudeville, no football, not even a shave. Look at me, boys. I have no expenses at all. You're suckers, boys. Get on the gravy train. I know what I'm talking about. I used to need all the things that you need right now. I used to be a consumer. I've consumed a lot of my time. I've consumed more shrapnel and gunpowder than any living man. So don't get blue, boys, because you'll have your chance. There'll be another war along pretty soon and then maybe you'll be lucky like me. Take me into the schoolhouses, all the schoolhouses in the world. Suffer little children to come unto me, isn't that right? They may scream at first and have nightmares at night, but they'll get used to it because they've got to get used to it. And it's best to start them young. Gather them around my case and say, Here, little girl, here, little boy, come and take a look at your daddy. Come and look at yourself. You'll be like that when you grow up to be great, big, strong men and women. You'll have a chance to die for your country. And you may not die, you may come back like this. Not everybody dies, little kitties. Closer, please. You over there against the blackboard, what's the matter with you? Quit crying, you silly little girl. Come over here and look at the nice man, the nice man who was a soldier boy. You remember him, don't you? Don't you remember, little crybaby, how you waved flags and saved tinfoil and put your savings in thrift stamps? Of course you do, silly. Well, here's the soldier you did it for. Come on, youngsters, take a nice look, and then we'll go into our nursery rhymes. New nursery rhymes for new times. Hickory Dickory Dock, my daddy's nuts from shell shock. Humpty Dumpty thought he was wise, till gas came along and burned out his eyes. A diller, a dollar, a ten o'clock scholar, blow off his legs and then watch him holler. Rockabye baby in the treetop, don't stop a bomb or you'll probably flop. 
Now I lay me down to sleep, my bomb-proof cellar's good and deep, but if I'm killed before I wake, remember God, it's for your sake. Amen. Take me into colleges and universities and academies and convents. Call the girls together, all the healthy, beautiful young girls. Point down to me and say, here, girls, is your father. Here is that boy who was strong last night. Here is your little son, your baby son, the fruit of your love, the hope of your future. Look down on him, girls, so you won't forget him. See that red gash there with mucus hanging to it? That was his face, girls. Here, girls, touch it. Don't be afraid. Bend down and kiss it. You'll have to wipe your lips afterwards because they will have a strange rotten stuff on them, but that's all right because a lover is a lover and here is your lover. Call all the young men together and say, here is your brother, here is your best friend, here you are, young men. This is a very interesting case, young men, because we know there is a mind buried down there. Technically, this thing is living meat like the tissue we kept alive all last summer in the lab. But this is a different cut of meat because it also contains a brain. Now listen to me closely, young gentlemen. That brain is thinking. Maybe it's thinking about music. Maybe it has a great symphony all thought out or a mathematical formula that would change the world or a book that would make people kinder or the germ of an idea that would save a hundred million people from cancer. This is a very interesting problem, young gentlemen, because if this brain does hold such secrets, how in the world are we ever going to find out? In any event, there you are, young gentlemen, breathing and thinking and dead like a frog under chloroform with its stomach laid open so that its heartbeat may be seen so quiet, so helpless, but yet alive. There is your future and your sweet wild dreams. There is the thing your sweethearts loved and there is the thing your leaders urged it to be. Think well, young gentlemen. Think sharply, young gentlemen, and then we will go back to our studies of the barbarians who sacked Rome. Take me wherever there are parliaments and diets and congresses and chambers of statesmen. I want to be there when they talk about honor and justice and making the world safe for democracy and 14 points in the self-determination of peoples. I want to be there to remind them I haven't got a tongue to stick into the cheek I haven't got either. But the statesmen have tongues. The statesmen have cheek. Put my glass case upon the speaker's desk, and every time the gavel descends, let me feel its vibration through my little jewel case. Then let them speak of trade policies and embargoes and new colonies and old grudges. Let them debate the menace of the yellow race and the white man's burden and the course of empire, and why should we take all this crap off Germany or wherever the next Germany is? Let them talk about the South American market, and why so-and-so is beating us out of it, and why our merchant marine can't compete, and oh, what the hell, let's send a good stiff note. Let them talk more munitions and airplanes and battleships and tanks and gases. Why, of course we've got to have them. We can't get along without them. How in the world could we protect the peace if we didn't have them? Let them form blocks and alliances and mutual assistance packs and guarantees of neutrality. Let them draft notes and ultimatums and protests and accusations. But before they vote on them, before they give the order for all the little guys to start killing each other, let the main guy wrap his gavel on my case and point down at me and say, Here, gentlemen, is the only issue before this house. And that is, are you for this thing here or are you against it? And if they are against it, why, goddamn, let them stand up like men and vote. And if they are for it, let them be hanged and drawn and quartered and paraded through the streets in small, chopped-up little bits and thrown out into the fields where no clean animal will touch them and let their chunks rot there and may no green thing ever grow where they rot. Take me into your churches, your great towering cathedrals. They have to be rebuilt every fifty years because they are destroyed by war. Carry me in my glass box down the aisles where kings and priests and brides and children at their confirmation have gone so many times before to kiss a splinter of wood from a true cross on which was nailed the body of a man who was lucky enough to die. Set me high on your altars and call on God to look down upon his murderous little children, his dearly beloved little children. Wave over me the incense I can't smell. Swill down the sacramental wine I can't taste. Drone out the prayers I can't hear. Go through the old holy gestures for which I have no legs and no arms. Chorus out the hallelujahs I can't sing. Bring them out loud and strong for me, your hallelujahs, all of them for me, because I know the truth and you don't, you fools. You fools. You fools. You fools. Thank you for listening. 
I have been your host for these past two weeks. I'm Professor Robert E.G. Black. You can find links to my blog and all my podcasts at lemmingdrops.com. You can find The Best Minutes Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, or at the main site, thebestminutes.com. Or follow the show on social media at Butch's Place, the Best Years of Our Lives Listeners Cafe on Facebook, and on Twitter at The Best Minutes. There are over 170 other Movies by Minutes podcasts available at moviesbyminutes.com. Check out the site for more great shows. And please join us here next time on The Best Minutes Podcast. Joe, you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.